Heavenly Father, we come before you, humbled by your love, by your grace, by the blessings that you have poured out in our lives. I ask this morning that you would open our eyes to see the wonder, to see your work around us, and that we would be ambassadors for you, that we would use our hands, our feet, our lives to be a witness to your goodness, your glory, and your beauty. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. I see that most of us maybe are rested, as a lot of us have probably enjoyed spring break this week. This is actually the last day of spring break, so I hate to be the the bearer of bad news there. Um, I used to teach, and so I'm very aware that this last day is just the worst. It's just so sad. In contrast, I'm sure every parent in the room is probably a little maybe excited um, that the end is here. There's always a little bit of contrast there. Um, So over the weekend, I heard this interview that um, was pretty fascinating and also a little bit related to our story this morning. Um, It was about a guy named Kevin Hall, and he had something called the Truman Show Delusion. So if you don't know what that is, the Truman Show is a movie about a guy who just thinks he's living a normal life. And throughout the movie, he finds out that this is a lie that his life is actually a carefully crafted reality TV show. That his neighbors that he has grown up with his entire life are paid actors that are advertising things throughout his life. It's almost comical. And in the end, he comes face to face with the director who says, yeah, your entire life has been a TV show. So this man, Kevin Hall, he has something called the Truman Show delusion, which means that he falsely thinks his life is a TV show. He hears voices in his head, which he believes are the director, giving him instructions. They're audible voices that he feels like he ha- he's compelled to do for the show. By the way, this is 10 years before the Truman Show. Okay. Um, And so the director will tell him to listen in on other people's conversations. The director will tell him to steal a car. Not surprisingly, this guy ends up arrested, okay, uh, because of the things that the director has told him to do. He is also, he happens to be an Olympic athlete, this this guy. So um, he is a professional, world-renowned sailor. And he starts training, and he gets on the Olympic team. And it is when he is at the Olympics in Tokyo that he gets arrested. So again, his life comes crashing down, and his delusion is exposed in a very humiliating way. And as he's talking in this interview, it was fascinating, um, and it will tie into our sign this morning. He said that it was very hard for people to imagine that your brain can keep confirming something that's clearly not true. Once you're in, you're all in. 
and you need something from the outside to tell you it's not true. So this idea is going to be brought up in the sign we'll be reading. The idea that we can be blind to the truth that is right in front of us. So if you have your Bibles, please open up to John chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible, there is a Bible in the seat in front of you. John chapter 9 is where we will begin. Today we will be continuing our sermon series on the seven signs. Uh, There's a reason why there are seven. It's not just because John likes the number. Seven is a very special number um, in Jewish tradition. It links back to the creation story. God created the world in seven days. This number, uh, it means more than just a number. The number symbolizes completion or perfection. So it is no wonder that John presents with us seven signs. They are meant to uh, stir up images of the creation story and perfection. Now, John is a, a little bit of an acquired taste. If you've read the gospel in full, whenever I would teach the gospels to my students, I would compare them to movie genres and say, you've got Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are kind of like your high-energy action movies. And then John is kind of like this artsy indie film that you can maybe learn to appreciate, but a lot of times as you're going through it, you're left kind of like, well, that was weird. Um, So again, for example, in John, you have a passage where Jesus talks about, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood in order to have life. That's kind of weird, right? We can be honest that there's weird stuff in the Bible. That's okay. Um, So John has become a gospel that I've grown to love. I wouldn't say that I, uh, it was love at first read, um, not like the other gospels. So when Mike asked me to preach from John, I was eager to uh, preach from one of these signs because I have now grown to appreciate it and love John like a favorite piece of art, right? Um, so again, in John chapter 9, we are given the sixth sign. So in verse 1, it reads, As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Okay, so this question has revealed an assumption that the disciples have. And it was a common assumption during this time. That if you were sick, it was because you did something wrong. You had somehow sinned, and this had caused something bad happening to you. We have a pretty um, good understanding of what this is. In our day, we might call that karma, right? It's this Eastern idea that if you do good things, you will receive good things. And likewise, those that do bad things will receive or have bad things happen to them. It's a very simple idea to understand. And it even comes from this this good place, right? Our desire for justice. In general, we want to see good things happen to people that we would say are deserving. And we would want the appropriate consequences to happen, right? To, To those who we would say, maybe those people shouldn't be out in society right? So it, it draws from this idea of justice. The problem with karma, 
The problem with this question is that reality is not this simple. There aren't purely good and purely bad people. And a lot of times, bad things tend to happen for no reason. They come out of nowhere. They're unexpected. So while we might like this elegant simplicity of karma, it doesn't seem to be the truth. So Jesus is going to answer this question, of course, in a way that's unexpected, which is going to be kind of our theme throughout this time. So starting in verse 3, Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work while the works of him who sent me, while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So Jesus rejects this idea that sin causes sickness. He says, nope, that's not it. It wasn't the blind man's fault, and it wasn't his parents' fault. And I want to be really, really clear here, because a lot of terrible theology has come from verse 3, as you might imagine. God did not cause the sickness. This is not Jesus' explanation. Jesus does not say in any way, shape, or form that God has somehow caused the sickness. He's not giving that explanation, which is frustrating because that's the question, right? But he doesn't answer that question. He instead gives the explanation for his mission. He says that the works of God will be displayed in him, specifically through his healing. God is glorified in his mission to bring healing. He is not glorified in the sickness. That is not what God is about. That's not what the kingdom's about. And all throughout the Bible, we see this. We see that there's not a really great explanation for why there's sickness, for why there's evil. The Bible doesn't do a great job and doesn't really intend to answer that question. What the Bible does tell us over and over and over again is how God's fixing it, is that God is pushing it back. He is redeeming it. He is restoring it. And Jesus says that this is his mission. This is why he's here. He has been sent to bring light to the world. Here in this sign, both physically and spiritually. So he has essentially told the disciples, you've asked the wrong question, which happens all the time in the Gospels. I really feel bad for the disciples because they just seem to not get it, and I really can't fault them for it, right? But he just says, you've asked the wrong question. Let's move on. So starting in verse 6, we now see the sign. (laughs) Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man, which would be frustrating. This is me. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. 
they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. He's going to have to tell this story a lot. Okay? So a couple of things to note here about this sign that are pretty significant. We've seen in the past couple of weeks that Jesus has actually not been too actively involved in his signs, which is kind of weird. When he turns the water into wine, he just gives instructions to the servants at the party and doesn't even take credit for it and says, hey, what's up? I made the wine, right? He, there's no credit. Nobody really knows. Healing the official son, he just says, go home, he's healed. And last week, there aren't even other people really involved. Jesus is just doing his thing, walking on the water. So here we have a contrast. Now Jesus has physically gotten involved. He's getting his hands dirty, literally. So this is what's significant about this healing. Um, He physically touches the blind man. Not only this... But for some strange reason, he spits in the ground and forms mud. I'm kind of a germaphobe, so that whole situation seems like, can't you just, like the other guy, say you can see and and we're good? No, but this, this has to be a little bit different. And again, John being a masterful storyteller and artist, something's going on here. So first of all, This is the sixth sign, okay? Um, If you're thinking about the creation story, which John wants you to do, then something significant happens on the sixth day, which I think I've been hearing some of you guys whispering it. Humans are created on the sixth day, okay? And how are humans created? From dust. You guys all did really well in Sunday school growing up, okay? Uh, So they're formed from the dust, right? John is being very intentional here. So here we have Jesus. He's crafting dust. He's gone a little bit above and beyond. He's made mud, okay? And he has put it over his eyes. This is meant to signify an act of new creation. He's not just reversing. He's creating something new. Uh, The other thing that's significant is that what we're seeing is a foretaste, is a sign of the future coming into the present. So in the book of the Maccabees, there are these seven brothers who are being tortured. They are going to their death. The Greeks are about to kill them. And as they are going to their death, these Maccabees are taunting their oppressors, which is pretty bold. Um, But as they're being tortured, they're saying, look, you can cut off my hands but I'm going to get new hands in the resurrection. So go ahead. You don't scare me. I will be physically resurrected and restored. Death has no hold on me. I've got no fear. So amazingly, what we're seeing is this sign of the future bodily restoration. In the age to come, there is no blindness. He is receiving his resurrected eyes new creation. And we're given even more of a hint with what he's instructed to do next. So Jesus tells him to go to the pool of Siloam, which the text helpfully uh, gives us the definition. It's always nice when the Bible itself tells you what it means. That's just, you can't count on that all the time. So that's nice. So the pool of Siloam means sent. So he is sending uh, 
the blind man, we never get his name, to the pool, okay? <clears throat> so this idea of being sent is very common in John. Jesus <clears throat> is constantly talking about how he is being sent from the Father. He is the one who is sent, and now he's sending others. It's this great uh, cycle that just spreads the kingdom everywhere. So he is sending this blind man to the pool. Another significant thing about the pool is that during the Feast of Tabernacles, people would draw water from this pool to signify or symbolize the blessings of the age to come. Guess what feast is happening right now during the story? Feast of Tabernacles. So during the feast, Jesus is very aware of what he's doing. He tells him to go to this pool where people draw waters and receive blessings. The blessings of the future age are recovery of sight, healing of sickness, resurrection. So once again, Jesus is making this perfectly clear. You are receiving the blessing of the future age right now in the present. This is pretty spectacular. Now, Jesus does not stick around to see if the blind man is healed. True to form, he's, he's gone. He doesn't want the crowds to, to grab him and try and make him king again. He's not going to let that happen. So after the blind man goes to the pool, he comes back and he can see. And there are a lot of questions for the blind man. Uh, and he doesn't have any answers, okay? All he has at this point is a guy named Jesus put mud on my eyes, and now I see. And they're like, where's this guy from? Who is he? Uh, why did you let him do this to you? I'm just inferring that because that would be one of my questions. So um, I don't know if this commonly happens in y'all's marriages, but uh, Zach will come home from the day, and I will have all these questions, right? He'll tell me a story, and I've got about five to ten questions that I have about, well, what about this? How did that go exactly? And he doesn't have any answers. It's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't, I didn't even think to ask that. And I was like, if I would have been in that room, I would have asked this, 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 and this. Um, so I feel like I would have probably been the person that that poor blind man was interacting with because I'd be like, whoa, 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 you need more information. Obviously, you just let this strange person put mud on your eyes, go to the pool and come back. Anyway, so I feel a little bit of sympathy uh, for the blind man here. But this is going to bring us to the second half of our story, where instead of celebrating this amazing sign, there's an investigation. There's mistrust. There is questions. They can't go to the party because they've got to investigate. So uh, we're going to continue the story starting in verse 13. So they brought the, to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. He's getting really good at telling the story. Okay. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him? Since he has opened your eyes. He said, he's a prophet. Okay, so a lot has happened between John's fifth and sixth sign. 
essentially, things have gotten a lot more hostile for Jesus. He continues to come up against the crowds and the religious leaders, and there's conflict. Uh, Specifically, right in the chapter before our sign, Jesus has compared himself to Abraham, said he existed before Abraham somehow, and calls himself the great I am, God's personal name. So this is very controversial, um, and the crowds pick up stones, and they are ready to kill him. This is right before he heals the blind man. So we might understand why the Pharisees are pretty upset with Jesus. Here's this Jesus guy again, stirring up trouble, breaking the rules, and it's just causing us grief. Also, really important to note, the Pharisees are split on Jesus. Some of them think he's for real. Some of them think that he's obviously from God. He's healing this person. Unfortunately, that group seems to be in the minority. They don't win out. Okay, The majority of the Pharisees are suspicious, and they think this guy's trouble. So only after we see the sign do we learn that it's the Sabbath. Just to give you a little bit of background on the Sabbath, this was a very important rule for the Jews. So again, we're going back to creation. God creates in seven days, but he rests on the seventh. And he considers the seventh day holy. Not only this, he commands his people to rest on the seventh day. This is not some trivial rule for them. Going back to the Maccabees, uh, there was a group of Jews who were fleeing for their lives from the Greeks. They fled into the mountains. The Greeks eventually catch up with them and encounter them, and it's the Sabbath day. And so the Jewish people refuse to fight back because it's the Sabbath, and it's a slaughter. They all die. So this is something that the Jewish people have fought and died for. This is something they've been persecuted for. And here comes Jesus just treating it like it is not a big deal at all. Like he can just break this rule. My ancestors have died for this. And you're just going to treat this like nothing, right? So again, we come to a very important point in the sign. Because the Pharisees can't get past this idea that a person can't do God's will and break one of God's rules. And it's going to keep them from seeing what God's doing. Okay, so Jesus is in trouble. The Pharisees don't agree. So they need more information. They're going to call in the blind guy's parents. Get ready to hear the story again. Verse 18. Okay, so the Jews did not believe that he'd been blind. Here we go. And he received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age. He will speak for himself. The parents are passing the buck here. Um, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. 
ask him. Brief note on your translations. John does this a lot. When he says the Jews, he is talking about the religious leaders, okay? Not the entire group of people, which again, even the religious leaders are divided on what to think about Jesus. So just little note to avoid generalizing here. Um, and his parents are afraid, which is unfortunate, right? Like of all the people that are supposed to have your back, and his parents are saying, Mm-mm, no, just, just ask him. He's old enough, right? They pass the buck. So for the second time, which is actually the third time, they call the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. This is a Jewish idiom that means confess your sins. We know that this man is a sinner, he answered. Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began had it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered, You were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. So he doesn't get through. (coughs) He doesn't get through. And not only this, but to contrast his parents' fear, he is unquestionably bold, continues to speak the truth, and even gets snarky. So you have to appreciate someone that can mock the person that they know has the power to do some serious damage to him. Again, I'm hearing the echo of the Maccabees taunting their oppressors. Fine, do whatever you want. You don't have the power over me. You think you do, but you don't. So I can't help but appreciate his boldness. And John wants us to see it as a contrast. So again, he has to retell the story. Again, they don't buy it. So here's the first thing that this sign is pointing to. Right? This is why John calls them signs and not miracles, because they're pointing to something. This sign is different because it's pointing to a warning. It's giving us a pretty scary warning. And here it is. It is possible to miss out on what God is doing right in front of us. I'm going to say that again. It is possible to miss out on what God is doing right in front of us because it doesn't fit our expectations or it's not done our way. That's a pretty scary warning, at least for me. So here you have this man who has been healed. He is blind from birth, and they've brought in everybody, right? They've brought in the neighbors. They've brought in the people that know him. And time and time again, they're like, yep, this is the guy. He was blind. Then they bring in his parents, and they say, yeah, he was blind. How many times do they have to hear from his own lips 
from the people that are witnesses that he was blind and now he sees. How can they be so blind? The story seems to tell us that there's nothing more dangerous than blind certainty. Believing against all evidence to the contrary that you are right. In fact, John is making a direct contrast between the certainty of the religious leaders and the faith of the blind man. There's quite a difference indeed. Faith is going to ask us to move into the unknown. Certainty never moves until it's sure. Faith easily coexists with doubt. Certainty is terrified of being wrong. A lot of people confuse faith with certainty. I found this in my experience as a teacher, specifically because I taught apologetics or defense of the faith. And so I was very clear from the beginning when I talked to my students, you are not going to get every question answered. If anybody is selling that to you, run. They're, they're selling something, but not the truth. You will never get ultimate certainty in this life. What I can hope to do is bolster the faith. So the last part of the story is a progressive revelation of Jesus. Throughout the entire encounter, everyone's asking, who is this guy? Where did he come from? How has he opened your eyes? And throughout the story, the blind man's answer has interestingly changed. At first, he's just a guy named Jesus. It's just this guy, I don't know, he put mud on my eyes. Then, when the Pharisees ask him, he's a prophet. This is understandable. Prophets were known for doing the works of God, for healing. Of course, this guy's a prophet. When they push him further, he says he was from God. He's sent from God. And now, in the last part of our story, we will finally get the reveal of who Jesus is. So starting in verse 35. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? The honesty is pretty real here. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who may see become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Again, a powerful warning to end with. Beware of claiming to know what is right. So Jesus encounters this blind man who can now see. And he asks him a weird question. One, he refers himself to himself in the third person. Um, it's interesting, scholars have noted, why doesn't Jesus just say, do you believe in me? Instead, he asks the question, do you believe in the son of man? Which is an obscure title, even then. Religious scholars could have gone for hours about the implication of what that title meant. Let's look at Daniel 7 and all these proof texts. Um, but anybody off the street 
is not really going to be familiar with that title. So it's odd that Jesus asks, do you believe in the Son of Man? It seems like it's almost the last test. And the blind man simply says, show me who he is, and I will believe. Because here's the thing that he knows, that he has learned. He may not know who the Son of Man is, but he trusts the person who has given him his sight. I trust you, so whatever you're going to tell me, I'll follow. This is what Jesus has been looking for. And he reveals his identity, and the man worships him, which is also really significant. Um, Jesus has up to this point been pretty vague about his identity. And this story ends with the blind man worshiping Jesus. He gets it. He finally sees. He was healed of his physical sight. Now he has been given spiritual sight. He has been healed fully. So as we conclude uh, with these six signs, I want to um, draw our attention to the two things that I believe this sign is pointing to. So first is that faith is the antidote to our blindness, to our blind spots. Not a faith that claims to have all the answers, but a faith that allows us to move into the unknown and enables our hearts and our minds to be changed, to admit that we might be wrong, to receive correction. Second, the sign points to learning to trust our experience. The blind man didn't know a lot about Jesus or where he came from, but there was no denying that once he was blind and now he can see. The Pharisees' questions no longer make sense in light of his experience. And he doesn't want to spend the rest of his time debating the miracle. He wants to spend the rest of his time enjoying the miracle that he's received. This is the essence of wisdom. So my prayer for us as we close today is that as we move closer and closer to Easter, our blind spots would be removed. Our eyes would be opened to the work of Christ's kingdom that is truly happening right in front of us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we want to be like the blind man. We want to see. Help us to retrain our eyes that see as you see through faith and without fear. We ask that you would continue to remind us of the ways that you are working and that we will be overwhelmed by the beauty, the justice, the goodness of Christ and his kingdom. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.